Hushlings, the following debriefing is sensitive in nature. We cover topics concerning true crime based on actual events. There is discussion of murder and sexual assault. If these topics are uncomfortable for you, we encourage you to listen to one of our lighter debriefings within our catalog, or check us out on our next debriefing. We will now proceed to debriefing 49, the Cheshire Home Invasion Murders. Good evening, hushlings, and welcome. I present your preceptors to the underbelly of the void, the whispers of conjecture, and the known of the unknown. Thus begins the conclave of the Hush Hush Society. More testimony expected today in the trial of one of the two men charged in that shocking home invasion in Connecticut. It comes a day after jurors heard a detective describe one of the men's chilling confessions. Andrea Canning has more now from New Haven, Connecticut. Good morning, Andrea. Good morning, Robin. And that detective said Hayes, Stephen Hayes was, quote, flat and quiet that day. But what he had to say in those hours after the crime was absolutely horrific. Detective Anthony Buglioni relived Stephen Hayes' 70-minute emotionless confession for the jury, taken shortly after he was arrested for the murders of Jennifer Pettit and her two daughters. Greetings, Hustronauts. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour, where we journey into the world of conspiratorial mysteries and dark truths. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Mystery Mike. And as always, we're joined by our fellow nutmegger, Slick Frank Sanders. I love nutmeg. I love nutmeg. Slick Frank Sanders here. I love nutmeg. There he is. Put it into your cocoa. It's really good. Oh, uh, nutmeg. You guys ever do a little nutmeg? A little nutmeg and sugar in your cocoa? Uh, I love a, love me a little key bump of nutmeg in the morning. Oh, yeah. oh. You could be like Amber Heard on trial. <laughs> yeah. I, I still don't know what's going on with that, nor do I want to. She stuck some nutmeg inside of her tissues. All I know is that she pooped in Jack Sparrow's bed, and I'm not happy about it. <laughs> Too much rum. <laughs> it's, all, it's all loose. Ooh. In our 49th installment, we find ourselves in the good old 203 in Cheshire, Connecticut. The year is 2007. The month is July. And we are on the scene of one of the most heinous crimes the state has seen in decades. Besides Ned Lamont. Two suspects, Joshua Komasarjewski and Stephen Hayes, broke into the Pettit family's home in Cheshire, Connecticut. The family was beaten, sexually assaulted, and tied to their beds before the house was set ablaze. Dr. William Pettit was attacked, tied up in the basement, and his wife Jennifer Hawk Pettit, his two daughters, Haley and Michaela, were murdered. However, Dr. William Pettit escaped the clutches of certain death by getting through a basement window into the backyard. This case turned Connecticut's laws on their head and had a significant impact on CT's laws regarding the death penalty and capital punishment. Both perpetrators were recommended to be put to death, which halted the momentum to end the state's death penalty. We dig into the family, the suspects, what happened that tragic day, the investigation that followed, and the aftermath to a community, and the Connecticut justice system. But before we take a seat in the jury box and deliberate, be sure to check us out on all our social medias. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also come watch us play some video games on our Twitch channel. How fun, how cool. What games do you play? Do you, uh, do you play virtual chess? You like that? 
Play, <laughs> play that old pinball game from Windows XP back in the day? You want to play together? You want to you wanna touch joysticks? Are you winking at them? Are you winking at them? You got that one guy on a VR headset that's got jerk-off instructions. He's like, I just wanted to do this. <laughs> yeah, welcome me again, Hushlings. Welcome me again. Oh, my God. <laughs> we also invite you over to our Discord server where you can chat with us and watch 300-plus episodes of The X-Files in our watch parties, which just started earlier this month and will be weekly on Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Continue Season 1 with us and be ready for a long-haul journey. I'm thinking, so the first night that we did this, we did two episodes. So I'm thinking maybe if we can get away with it time-wise, just to speed things up, we might do two episodes every Sunday. Yes, I think we should. I think we should. For everything Hush Hush Society, visit our official website, www.hushhushsociety.com. There you can find all of our segments from debriefings to our double D declassified discussions, our double C cryptid chronicles. You can also purchase Hush Hush Apparel. Maybe some accessories coming. Read some Hush Hush news. Explore other conspiracies in our juicy ass blog section. You can also leave the oh-so-special review. Yes, please leave us a review. It is, uh, that's our call to action to you. Go on to Spotify. It's very easy. You can leave us a star rating on there. It takes literally about five seconds. Uh, it's easier than iTunes. You don't need to sign into your iTunes account or anything. You just get in there, hit five stars, say you guys are doing a bang-up job, and move on. Other than Spotify and Apple Podcasts, you can also leave us a review on podchaser.com, Google Podcasts, or the Good Pods app. And last but not least, a donation of $5 a month will release your earthly soul as you ascend to become a true hushling. There you'll gain access to exclusive debriefings, Mystery Mike's cryptid erotica, that will leave you throbbing for more, as well as monthly conspiratorial news in the Frong Factor, which includes myself and Declassified Dave. You'll also get merch drops, sticker packs, and early episode releases. You can join today at www.patreon.com slash hushhushsociety. Well, we have found ourselves in Connecticut. We found ourselves there earlier this month with our buddy Nico from Upstate Unconventional, where we explored the melon heads. <laughs> That was a fun one. That was a good episode, and we thank Nico for joining us by the fire. But today, let's solve a murder. I don't think we're going to solve it, but... It's been solved. (laughs) 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 Has it, though? Has it, though? Has it, has it, though? Has it, David? Has it, has it? Are you just so hard up to to say that the the guys that they caught are definitely the ones that did this? Uh... Well, as we previously mentioned, this murder took place in Cheshire, Connecticut, which is a small town with less than 30,000 residents. But more importantly, who are the Pettits? They're the typical American family, beautiful house, charming, quiet town, two daughters who were on their way to bright futures, pretty much anything you can ask for. Shall we begin with a little background of the father and husband in the family, Sir William? Dr. Pettit was an endocrinologist in Plainville, as well as the medical director of the Jocelyn Diabetes Center at the Hospital of Central Connecticut, formerly New Britain General Hospital, or, as we like to call it, the locals, nobody goes home. (laughs) 
He planned to run for Congress as a Republican, but ultimately opted not to. Yet he successfully campaigned for the Connecticut General Assembly in the election cycle of 2016. Jennifer Hawk Pettit, his wife, worked as a nurse and co-director of the health department at Cheshire Academy, a private boarding school in Cheshire. So in other words, these folks had some money. Yeah, they were doctors. Yeah, making doughs. Jennifer met William in 1985 at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh while enrolled in the University of Pittsburgh Oncology Nursing Program, and later that year they married. Beautiful love story. Haley, who was 17 at the time, was the Pettit's oldest daughter. She had recently graduated from Miss Porter's school on Farmington, a little private school for girls only. God, when I was in high school, the hottest chicks went to Miss Porter's school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why they were put away in private schools, so that people like you didn't fucking fuck with them. <laughs> yeah. She was a high honor roll student who participated in varsity cross country and basketball. Let me tell you, just before we move on, people who live in Connecticut who are in sports absolutely fucking love cross country. They just love to run. Just run. Yeah, run the fuck away from Connecticut. I'm just saying, like, back in my high school days, cross-country was, like, the biggest thing in the world. She was elected to the senior leadership post of the Athletic Association head while in school. She received a school award for outstanding community service and was enthusiastic about running a fundraiser for multiple sclerosis research. She was planning on attending Dartmouth College to study medicine as well. Man, running a family. Yeah, there it is. The Pettit's younger daughter, Michaela, went to Chase Collegiate School before her death and was avid to follow in her sister's footsteps for charity work as well as cooking. She was 11 years old at the time of her passing. We have to ask, who would do something so malicious and horrific to anyone, let alone an innocent family of four? Well, our two perpetrators were Stephen Joseph Hayes, 58, of Homestead, Florida, figures, and Joshua Andrew Komisarjewski, 41. Of Torrington. Figures. Also figures. figures. Yeah, also figures. figures. For those of you not stationed in Connecticut, Torrington is like, um, it's like if you, <laughs> if you let uh, some, some marinating meat get lost in the basement fridge, and then you came down <laughs> months later, and you were like, oh man, I really gotta throw this shit away. And then you go and you throw it away in your outside garbage bin, and then you forget to take your garbage out for another three months, and then you come outside and there's like flies flying all around it, and it's nasty and it's gross, and you look inside and you go, holy shit, it's touring to Connecticut. <laughs> or if you've ever been to Skid Row in Los Angeles, it's kind of the there's same There's so many El Caminos <laughs> in Torrington. There are so many El Caminos in Torrington, and I don't know why. Is this just going to turn into an episode of us just shit-talking every fucking community in Connecticut? We love you, CT. Yeah. Keep listening. CT. Well, Stephen Hayes was convicted as an adult for the first time at the age of 16 in 1980. And after two years, he was paroled, but he violated it soon afterwards. What do they used to call Torrington? Borington? <laughs> was that, was that one of the... <laughs> I don't know. Something like that. Sorry, I'm done with Torrington. Between 1980 and the day of this tragedy, Hayes was detained over 30 times. Jesus. 30 times. See, I feel... Bad guy. Bad guy. This is, this is the thing. I'm not... Now, now, California, do they still have the three-strike rule? Mm-hmm. I believe so. Okay. So, you know, there's the states that have, have taken up the three-strike rule. You know, you get 
charged with three felonies over a lifetime and you're gone for life. I don't necessarily agree with that in, in certain no. cases. Yeah, go for it. You know, if you're, if you're assaulting old ladies and then the third one you come in and you just killed someone, yeah, go, go to fucking jail. Like no, no problem. But on the opposite end of it, someone like this who has been arrested and, and put in prison 30 fucking times, I, I really think that, like, you should hit, maybe if you're hitting the double digits, you should be put away for a really long time. I feel like yeah. that's a failure of the system there. It is a failure of the system because, I mean, we could get into prison reform and all that other stuff, but we're not going to. Uh, but there reaches a certain point, like I said, where if you're spending more time in prison than you are at home or in the open air, then you should probably put, be put away for a while. Like I'm all for that. You know, not, (laughs) maybe not forever, but I mean, if this, think about this guy, he's 58 now, this was 15 years ago. So he was what in his mid late thirties. And if he's spent, if he's been arrested 30 times since 1980, this guy's spent, in 1980, how old was he? 16, 17? 16, yeah. So, like, yeah, so he's been spending, he's spent more time incarcerated in his life than he has. And a lot of times, a lot of these these folks that get incarcerated go back, maybe not on purpose, but they don't really care if they get caught because it's three hots in a cot. Yeah. But I also wonder how many repeat offenders like Hayes were put in prison in those double-digit numbers and could have stayed there for longer periods of time and prevented things like this. Absolutely. You know? I mean, once you're in and out a couple of times, odds are you probably won't learn your lesson. So you make a good point. Just, like, keep them in there for for a decade or two. See what happens. Yeah. No. Then they get old. Yeah. I agree. Think about it. This guy's a 60-year-old man now. Yeah. Hayes was arrested the previous year for slamming a car window with a rock and stealing a woman's pocketbook. He was released on parole in 2006 and transferred to the Silliman halfway home, ultimately meeting Komisarjewski. Benedict Komisarjewski and his wife Jude adopted Joshua while his mother was just 16 years old. Well, Sir Joshua was not... The nicest of teenagers, I would imagine. His sister actually accused him of sexually assaulting her in the early 1990s. When he was 14, he committed his first burglary. He was also arrested in 2002 for 18 home invasions. His defense attorney at the time claims that he informed him in great detail about every burglary he's ever committed. See, that's exactly what I'm talking about. 18 home invasions... Yeah, dude. Like you fuck, should man? you should definitely be put away for some really long time. After ransacking the residences, Komisarjevsky would walk to the rooms where the residents were sleeping and listen to their breathing. Creep. Wow. He did yeah, this because right. he enjoyed invading people's homes and breaching their security. That's exactly what the fuck I'm talking about. You have a bona fide psychopath. Yeah, that's that's pretty fucking crazy. If you're breaking into someone's house, 18 just times to to and then you're you're taking their shit and then you go to their room and you just stand in the doorway and you're just really quiet and they just <sighs> yeah that's it mike it's all about the that's thrill it. of the sale they don't even know i'm here they don't even know 
Was he was he breaking in to steal shit, or was he breaking in literally yeah, just to like yeah, listen were... to people breathe and be like, yeah, I'm totally <laughs> breaching their security right now? He burglarized them. Just got a kick out of it. Yeah. That was the loot. He burglarized them, but at the end, you know, he sat there and he had this kink where he liked to hear them hear them breathe. That was the icing on the cake? Yeah. Fucked. The sweet finish. In December of 2002, he was also convicted on 12 charges of burglary and sentenced to nine years in prison. Commissar Jeffsky was described as a calculated, cold-blooded predator by the judge at his sentencing. Exactly it. See? 12, 12 charges of burglary, sentenced to nine years. No, I'm sorry. But a judge... 15, at least. Yeah. I mean, throw something serious at him. You know? Why not one year for every burglary? Exactly. That's what I'm saying, yeah. I don't know. A year and a half for every burglary. Two years for every burglary. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck it. Fifteen years for each burglary. But But that's... It's telling because... If the judge who's sentencing you is saying that you're a calculated, cold-blooded predator, that person knows best. I'm sorry, but that person has probably seen hundreds of calculated, cold-blooded predators. So he would know, mm -hmm. he or she would know. I don't know. The justice system, as we've said, needs help. Well, unfortunately, he was released on parole shortly before this in April of 2007. And according to Connecticut law, prosecutors were obligated to transmit a transcript of the sentencing procedure to the parole board. But the parole board never received the transcript and was unaware of all the details about this case. So paperwork doesn't get transferred. Things don't happen. These guys were not petty criminals. These guys were bad motherfuckers. Like they've done what, what should be a lifetime of prison time you yeah. know i mean one one arrested more than 30 times one arrested you know more than 18 times yep. now that there's some decent background on how these events came to lead up to the tragedy you might be asking yourself what exactly happened on the morning of july 23rd 2007 well on the evening before on sunday july 22nd of 2007 Jennifer and her daughter, Michaela, went to a local stop-and-shop grocery store. I know exactly where this one is, too. You guys know where Cheshire stop-and-shop is? Yeah, no. I've been there for lunch. They picked up food for a family dinner Michaela planned to prepare. During their trip to the grocery store, Joshua Komarsarjewski noticed them and took interest, then followed them home. The family had no idea that this was their last dinner together. According to Hayes' confession, he and Komasarjevsky planned to rob the Pettit house at night when the family was sleeping, leaving them uninjured. Both men blamed the heinous outcome on a change of plans. Dr. Pettit was found sleeping on a couch in his sunroom when they arrived in the early hours of the 23rd of July, around 3 a.m. Komasarjevsky walked into the basement through an open door. Why the fuck? fuck that was unlocked is beyond because cheshire yeah, yeah i honestly, guess my dad used to leave the doors unlocked in berlin i know i used to walk into your house all the time that i surprisingly there are towns like that and there are people like that that still have like that that train of thought where oh i've lived in this neighborhood in this town for years upon years I've ne there's never been an issue there's never been anything you know that has happened of any significance so mm -hmm. To those people, 
leaving their doors unlocked is not really a big deal. Now, to me, I've also lived in Connecticut for my life, and small town or not, I'm not leaving my doors unlocked. I'm sorry, it's just not happening. Absolutely not. It's more so the world that we live in, not necessarily where you live, because you could live in a yes. beautiful place, as as we see here. You could live in a small town where nothing really happens, and then there is just that one, you know, fucking hundredth of a fucking percent that something happens, and and you don't you don't want one walk in at stop and shop. That's it. That's all it takes. It's wild because you know you know. Obviously, you know where my house was. My house was broken into three times when I lived there. You wouldn't think it in a town like Kensington, but it was a main road in between the Dirty Den in Meriden and Hard Hit in New Britain. And there's train tracks, and the backyard was in the train tracks. What an easy way to come in and out of somebody's house without being seen. Berlin, Connecticut is pretty similar to Cheshire, Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, just a little, not too not too far down the road and a little bit closer to Hartford. Commissar Jeffsky found a baseball bat at the bottom of the stairs in the basement, then proceeded to strike Dr. Pettit four or five times in the head, according to his testimony. As you can see in the picture below, gentlemen, yeah. homeboy got cracked. Yeah. But he's not really bruised. That's the weird thing about this He kind picture. of looks like Joe from Impractical Jokers. He does. He does. He, very much so. But you would think if you got hit with a Louisville slugger in the dome four times that you'd have way more swelling. Yeah. Well, this has to be after the swelling went away. Well, this is him in I the hospital, know. so Dude. it's got to be shortly after. Either way, you, like Dave said, you would think that he would be a lot more fucked up. Yeah. Especially with a of. baseball bat. Maybe no, it kind of looks like he fell on, like, the corner of a table. Mm. Yes. Yeah. To step back for a moment to something that we previously just talked about. In their own words, they said that they went there with no intention of hurting anyone, and they were just going to rob them and leave. I think they were looking for just money and jewelry but, and probably things of things of value. Okay. Agreed. But as we see... Pretty much immediately, as soon as Komisarjevsky enters the house, he automatically violence. goes to violence. It seems like there was no, there was no actual incident to cause them to change their course of action. If they went there to rob this family, why would you walk in and immediately assault the person who's sleeping there on the couch, like not doing anything? He must have gotten up and been startled or something. Because, like, there's no way you're just, like, bonk, mm. you know? Yeah. And they had guns, and maybe he grabbed that bat as a safety measure, I guess, you know, in case somebody did wake up, in case somebody did catch them so that they didn't have to kill them. They could just bonk them on the head a couple of times. I guess. Well, he's but no it, amateur, clearly. If, if you see where he hit him in the head, I, I can't help but feel like if you got hit right on the forehead with a bat dead, four or five man. yeah four or five times i feel like you'd die i don't know i feel like your whole that whole right side of his face nose would, would be broken be, like yeah, it, he'd it, be swollen it would just be caved yeah. dude fucking caved it almost looks like and it sounds terrible but it almost looks like he smacked his own head on something mm. oh like God. He, the deliberately like hit, yeah like hit his head on the corner of a counter yeah I used to do you know, that when there was no food in my mother's house. I would just hit my head on things. Yeah, see? 
So that's what it is. His wife went to the store the night before, forgot his cookies, and he said, fuck this. He wanted stroganoff, but they made fucking meatloaf. He was pissed. Well, the violence continued as they used plastic zip ties and rope to bind his wrists and ankles. Dr. Pettit recalls one of the perpetrators saying to the other, if he moves, put two bullets in him. The daughters and their mother were then confined to their rooms. The culprits then tied them to their bedposts by the wrists and their ankles and draped pillowcases over their heads. After being restrained, the two decided to raid the residence for valuables and money, and after discovering nothing of real genuine worth, aka cash, in the house or in the safe, they stumbled upon a check register of $40,000. Hmm. 2007, it's archaic, kids. It is interesting to note that in Komisarjevsky's testimony, he did say that they were trying to stop the bleeding on Dr. Pettit's wounds, as the two only intended to steal cash and goods. So he kind of backpedaled and said, like, yeah, we, we did try to help him out. We gave him a cold compress. It still doesn't make sense to me. Like, the, the violence is pretty immediate. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And then they're trying to help him. This is a direct quote from Joshua at the trial. Uh, so, uh, Steve and I, uh, continued doing, uh, poking around for money and realizing that there was no money there. The mother had mentioned that there was no safe, and Steve had found, a, a check register. The amount was 40-something thousand dollars in it. We discussed the possibility of sending the mother down to the bank to retrieve a sum of $15,000. He continued, We didn't want to withdraw the full amount of 40 k in fear of raising some kind of red flag at the bank. The um, mother agreed. We assured her that if she complied, you know, there wouldn't be any problems. We were simply there for money and would be on our way. So he solidified it pretty much in court that they were there for assets. Yeah. It's interesting that he was willing to settle for 15 grand. Like that it's this more than enough. <laughs> yeah, it's a smart it's a smart move. I mean, imagine going to the bank and being like, "I need 40k." Yeah. Like that's yeah. that's a lot of fucking change, Good point. It, Good especially point. in 2007, you know, even now. I do have this thought regarding this testimony. In my head, if someone goes and admits that they were somewhere for a robbery and all of a sudden a plan had changed and inadvertently they went and killed the family, not mm. just just like along that thought process, then it turns it from something that was premeditated first degree murder to something that was, you know, a less of a degree. I don't, you know, I don't know the all the degrees of murder here, but something that went awry. But but it would be, you know, like third degree murder, second degree murder, whatever it may be. It wouldn't be that capital punishment, you know, charge. So I'm wondering if maybe this testimony was something that they put forward to take that death penalty or that life sentence off the table, like an attempt to get rid of that. As, 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 as a possibility. Could have been. Interestingly enough, you will find out why they took it off the table. And it's not because of mm. that. So being the nice guys that these two were, they tied William to a pole in the basement and decided to have Jennifer go on a ride with Hayes. 
There is surveillance video from a gas station that shows Hayes purchasing $10 worth of gasoline in two cans that were taken from the Pettit household. They went back to the house after that pit stop, and he took Jennifer into a bank to withdraw the $15,000 in cash. Now, the prosecution later claimed that this was evidence of premeditated murder, the two gas cans. Mm -hmm. It wasn't for the getaway car to get to Massachusetts, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Jennifer told the bank teller that men were kidnapping her family and threatening to kill them all. The transaction was captured on camera, and the bank manager called 911 immediately and reported the incident to police while Jennifer was still with the cashier. As Jennifer exited the bank, the manager reported to the 911 dispatcher in real time. Wait, so this dude trusted her to get out of the car. They had their family, so I guess I can see that. But he trusted her to get out of the car, walk into the bank, and not spill the beans, which she did, and they did call the police. Mm -hmm. At that point, why wouldn't you, as Jennifer, I'm not victim-blaming by any means. No. Yeah, we've been pinned for that one before. Yeah. In my mind's eye, I'm thinking maybe stalling would have been a better tactic as 911 was already called and police would have shown up. But at the other end of it, if police had shown up at the bank, then Hayes was in the car. He could have seen the police and he could have driven away immediately, went back to the house, killed everyone, and then just left anyways. So I get the pressure. Yeah, She was just thinking of her family, I'm sure. Yeah, probably, yeah. Only she knows. Can you imagine being that bank manager, though, (laughs) after all this is said and done and being like, fuck, dude, I I screwed up. Jennifer had suggested to the manager that the home invaders were, quote, being kind and that she believed they merely wanted money, according to the manager. The Cheshire police responded to the bank's report by assessing the situation and setting up a vehicle perimeter without revealing their presence. Smart move. Yes. A perimeter of the house or the bank, you might ask? Probably the bank. So yes, it was the bank. I think this is the biggest flaw in this entire situation, is that the police came to the bank because there was some inkling that the bank manager thought that she was an accomplice Mm. in this entire thing. So they went to the bank, set up a covert perimeter, watched everything, but... What we're about to get into unfolded while the police were at the bank. Now, in a town like Cheshire, Hushlings, there's probably like six cruisers. Mm, yeah. And I, you know, probably not a lot of police. I don't even know if they have police. I think they might be state police. They might have state run. police. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that they had a um, an escape vehicle ready that they were going to leave to Massachusetts with. No, that was a joke. Oh, I was going to say maybe the, the that's gas why cans were for that, lighting yeah. the fucking house on fire. Maybe that's what the gas cans were for so that they didn't have to stop at a gas station while fleeing. That was my thought, too. No, that was a joke. If I was going to flee. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. If, if no, you were going to flee, yeah, yeah. the smart thing to do if you were like a smart robber or a smart burglar, I mean, you wouldn't have gone to the bank in the Keep first place. And you especially wouldn't go to a gas station with with Jennifer in the car with him. But either way, getting gas beforehand, you could drive quite a distance without having to stop at any gas station. So within a certain mile perimeter, you know, 
I mean, on a full gas tank from Cheshire, Connecticut, they could have gotten at least into Pennsylvania. Oh, for sure. Hushling, we'll be right back after this short message. Greetings, Hushlings. We invite you to join us on Monday, June 6th for our 50th debriefing live on Facebook starting at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time or 4 p.m. Pacific. We explore transhumanism where we integrate our thoughts and explore the potential benefits and dangers of emerging technologies that could overcome human limitations, physical conditions, illnesses, and injuries with the belief that human beings may eventually be able to transform themselves into beings with abilities so greatly expanded from our current condition and form, even immortality. We also infiltrate the Yellow Sand Society, a secret society formed in northern China in the 19th century that focuses on personal salvation through inner work. As always, we will have Hush Hush Trivia, recap Season 5, and give you a sneak peek on Season 6. There will be giveaways and an all-new Preceptor Hot Takes. Come join the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour on Monday, June 6th for Transhumanism and the Yellow Sand Society. Streaming live on Facebook, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. For everything Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour, visit www.hushhushsociety.com. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. Here's where shit hits the fan. While Jennifer and Hayes were out, Komisar Jeffsky sexually abused the two sisters that were still held in the house. He actually documented the crimes on his cell phone camera from 2007. Yeah, this is fucked up. Michaela, the 11-year-old, was sexually assaulted, and evidence that Komisar Jeffsky actually raped Michaela came from her autopsy, which revealed his semen in her body, according to state medical examiner Dr. Wayne Carver. During Komisar Jeffsky's interrogation, he stated that he thought Michaela was 14 or 16. Like, that makes it any fucking better. That changes nothing. Jeez. I thought she was a teenager. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck? Forensic tests revealed that there was bleach on Michaela's clothes, implying that Komisar Jeffsky attempted to remove DNA evidence from the assault. According to Hayes, Komisar Jeffsky provoked him into raping Jennifer Hawk Pettit. Dr. Pettit could hear the entire assault. He yelled as one of the intruders said, Don't worry, it'll all be over in a matter of minutes. That was definitely Josh. Jesus Christ, man. Dude, I was researching this, and like I had to stop for an hour. Because I was like, this is it's really close to home. Yeah, yeah. It's fucked up in any sense. And it just keeps getting more warped and warped and warped as you did more research. Yeah. Dr. Pettit eventually managed to flee, later saying in court that after hearing this, he felt a jolt of adrenaline and an urge to to leave the scene. He's quoted as saying, I thought it was now or never, since I feared they were going to shoot all of us at the time. He didn't even try for a mad ditch to save his family. He just fucking flipped it. I got a problem with that. When this story first broke in Connecticut and kind of made national headlines, I had my initial thoughts, and then I will explore in my final thoughts what really cemented my initial thoughts um, just a year after this happened. But either way, this testimony of what he did in that moment just... Oh, man, I can't. 
I don't know. I can't. Ju I can't. I can't put myself into those shoes. I don't know what I would have done myself. But I do know that I would not have left my family there. No, I probably would have fought to the death. Yeah, if they're gonna shoot all of you. Yeah, I'm going down swinging, hmm. especially for the the people that you've created. Yeah, and the pe the person that helped you create those people. You know, your life partner. Ugh. Hayes claimed that while raping Dr. Pettit's wife on the living room floor, Komoserjevsky barged in and announced that Dr. Pettit had escaped. Jennifer was then strangled and murdered by Hayes. According to several investigators, Hayes raped her after she was slain. I guess making him a necrophiliac or something like that. I don't know. So but this is the thing that gets me. When whoever said, don't worry... It'll all be over in a matter of minutes. That's when his wife is being raped above yeah. him. Yeah. While he's in the basement. Now, if you were able to get loose, you can't find a single thing in that basement to fuck somebody up That was up my with. thought also. You're in the basement. That's probably the most likely area other than maybe your backyard shed where you would have something that can be formed as a weapon. Dude, rip a pipe off the fucking yeah. ceiling. Burn your little hands, dude. Like, see, this is the thing that gets me is that, well, in my basement, when I lived with my father, there were loaded weapons. <laughs> so, we are not victim blaming. We are not victim no, blaming. We not are not victim whatsoever. blaming. We are not victim blaming. We are just saying what we would do in this situation. Because, yes. I mean, granted, we lived down the street. We got to make that incredibly clear. We are not bigots. We are not victim shaming or blaming. But in this situation, if I was stuck in my basement and my family was threatened like that, one, there were guns in the basement. Two, I could have totally found something like a torque wrench and bonked you on the fucking head with it when mm. you weren't looking. But he didn't try. He just dipped out to the backyard with a head wound and was just like, uh, in his Joe Boxers, you know, like, because it's 3 a.m. when it happened. I would say this is probably... 9, 10, 11 in the morning at this point. Yeah, because they did go to the bank, so the bank had to be open at some point. Yeah. At yep. least 9 a.m. At yep. least. Wow. Hmm. Both daughters were doused with gasoline while chained to their beds. They started a fire and then fled the site. Haley and Michaela died as a result of smoke inhalation. Haley escaped her bindings and ran out of the bedroom into the corridor where she collapsed and died. Her body was discovered at the top of the stairs with third and fourth degree burns on her feet, although it was unclear if the wounds occurred before or after her death. Hmm. Michaela's body was discovered in her room. Her hands were still bound to her bed. Dr. Pettit had managed to break himself from his bonds, like we said before, escape the house, crawl through the backyard, and run to a neighbor's yard for assistance. The neighbor was actually frightened in the beginning of this because they couldn't recognize him. Obviously, the motherfucker was covered in blood. Now we're getting into timeline stuff, and certain things also don't make sense so far. It w again, final thoughts. But Hayes and Komisarjevsky, meanwhile, fled the scene in the Pettit family car. Police instantly spotted them followed them, and captured them one block away after ramming into a police car. They were charged with murder. Overall, seven hours had passed since the home invasion began. So here's my problem with the police. 
they showed up when the fire started. So they got the call for the fire at the house. Why didn't the bank manager notify the police that this person was taking this amount of money out and had claimed that they were being kidnapped and threatened to be murdered at their home and the perpetrator was outside? Why didn't they look up that account and know that William Pettit's address to go to that house as yeah, well. Yeah, it's it it feels like certain parts That's of a this, hole. there was just I don't know if it was the adrenaline of this wild situation or just fear or whatever it may be, but it seems to me at least so far that parts of this situation definitely could have been prevented. Mm-hmm. Um I'm still stuck on... I thought that there was a police perimeter set up around the bank after the call. So, did they leave the bank before that perimeter was set up? Uh, yeah, I wonder that It too. wasn't... They must have got through it or... Noted what car they were driving and went to go find it. Like, that's I mean, probably, if, that's probably a That's probably a detail that didn't get mentioned. If you're at... Most banks need your your address especially back in the early 2000s because they're they're mailing you your statements they probably didn't have electronic statements at the time so you know you you walk into the bank you go to make this withdrawal they have your name your phone number your address i think cops could have been there sooner again final thought stuff i'm just getting tripped up all in all the cops should have went to both locations i don't know Before we tap into the trials and convictions, we want to mention that these murders could have been prevented by the Cheshire Police Department. In a New York Post article from 2013, it stated, quote, The audio obtained by the Hartford Current shows that the inept cops were still convinced that Hawk Pettit was involved in the bank plan when they arrived at the family's house. Jesus. See, there you go. So they were still they were so caught up on the the bank stuff. That's the thing that bothers me is that they were more worried about the possibility of this woman creating some sort of fraud situation involving the bank than they were about the possibility of a family being raped and murdered. An account holder. I mean, a customer. <sighs> It's I just, guess, you know, that's, that. that's what I mean. It's just like... It's it's weird. Bad judgment like, on a lot of people. Where are the priorities there? Especially as law enforcement. How do you not look at that and go, all right, why don't we make sure that they're not being kidnapped? Why don't we make sure that they're not in any imminent danger? And then we can... At least send one car you know, to the house. Why don't we make sure that there's not going to be a murder before we, before we find out whether she's creating some sort of bank fraud here? I don't know. It's just it's it seems to me, again, in my own personal opinion, there's priorities there. You know, there's there's a, a mm-hmm. life, or there's money, and mm-hmm. don't get me started on fucking cops. Anyways, <laughs> Cheshire Police Department Sergeant Robert Vignola said there are three suspects. One female is in the bank. And the other females, apparently, are in the upper bedroom, potentially, quote, dead. Following that statement, Vignola radioed, quote, It had been around 50 minutes since the initial 911 call. See, that's what I mean. Like, they fucked up. 
Cheshire Police yeah, Department fucked up. and even in their radio correspondence, they're still saying there's three suspects. Like, you're, like, you're, at that point, you're still worried about the fucking money, man. You're still worried about the money, the bank, quote-unquote, robbery, or whatever. Like, come on, man. Come on. Maybe the cops were paid off. Maybe the cops were paid off. Maybe. We need to look into Robert Vignola. Because that is a big flop on their part. Big flop on both. The bank manager for going down Assumption Avenue and thinking that she was a part of this plot and then a, I mean, regrettable flop on the Cheshire Police Mm -hmm. Department for not at least sending one car to the household of the Pettis. <sighs> Hayes' trial began on September 13th of 2010, with a jury comprising seven women and five men. Hayes' defense attorneys contended that Komisarjevsky was the brains behind the house invasion and was responsible for intensifying the crime's violent nature at every important moment. Gotta pass the blame. Yeah, yeah somebody's got it. As the jury pondered for almost five hours and returned guilty verdicts on October 5th, prosecutors claimed that both perpetrators shared blame. On October 18th of 2010, the sentencing phase of the trial had begun, during which the jury had to decide whether Hayes should be executed or imprisoned for life, and it was on November 5th the deliberations began. Five hours for a guilty verdict. That's uh, that's pretty quick. Pretty quick. Pretty quick. That's my kind of jury duty. <laughs> I was going to say that seems too long. I don't know what jury duty is comprised of, but for me that, that seems quick. Like it it seems pretty obvious that uh, that they're guilty. Why did it take five hours? That's my outlook on it. I don't know. Jury duty can take fucking weeks. Bro. Why? What's the I debate do, I do there? Wonder- because I myself have never been on a jury, so I, I'm not sure what the what kind of hoops they make you go through. I don't know if they, as the court, make you, you know, put in, d- discuss it amongst your peers for a certain amount of time, or you know. Yeah, maybe there's a minimum or something. You you have to discuss it for a minimum. You sit there. I had to do jury duty in California once, and. I sat there for nine hours. But I'm not. I'm not talking about and the jury go part in. of it. I'm talking about when you're in deliberations, when the jury is already picked, and you. Well, I didn't have to do deliberation. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, like, when the jury's already picked, they've sat through this trial, they've listened to the evidence, they've done all these things. Now they're going to go in private in back rooms of the court there, and they're going to deliberate and they're going to talk about whether these two are guilty. I'm wondering if maybe there is some sort of like, okay, look, you can't walk in there and then come out five minutes later and say he's guilty. Um, you know, maybe mm. maybe the courts themselves say, look, you know, uh, say something about a certain time limit that it needs to be. You need to take at least four hours or you need to take at least five hours or whatever. Uh, again, not sure. Never done this. So. Well, well, think about this. The trial began in September 13th. And on October 18th, the sentencing began, and the second day 
of discussions for the jury began on November 6th, so the jury must have been present since at least September 13th, depending on how many sessions they had. Now, with this Amber Heard poop case, it's been many sessions. <laughs> what the so fuck? Thinking, think, so think about a murder case, and not even just a murder case, a multiple homicide case. The jury was split on whether to recommend life in prison or death on the first day of deliberations. On November 6th, the second day of these discussions began, defense attorney Thomas Ullman told the jury that the highest potential punishment for his client, Hayes, would be life in prison. He's quoted, Life in prison without the possibility of release is the harshest penalty. It is a fate worse than death. If you want to end his misery, then put him to death. If you want him to suffer and carry out that burden forever, the guilt, the shame, the humiliation, sentence him to life without the possibility of release. Yeah, that's lawyer talk for don't give him the death penalty, but you know these guys did not give two fucks. I'm sorry, they don't. You have repeat offenders for pretty much their entire lives. They went in guns blazing. I mean, not literally, but they went in with the intent to cause harm to these people. So uh, if need be, I I don't think I I don't think it was if need be. I think I think it was definitely fucking planned. It was definitely planned because Mm -hmm. you got to at least in in. If you, if you look at the history of, like, the, the lifelong criminals, their ability to go from something benign to something ultimately more malicious is it happens over time. So, like, even, even talking about Komisar Jevsky and looking at his past, like, he started with, you know, burglaries here and there. He started with this. He started with that. You know, he did little things here and there, little petty theft, whatever it may be. Then he started doing invasions of homes. And then he talked about sitting in people's houses and watching them breathe. He also had a sexual assault accusation from his sister. Exactly. So all of those, like, coming together... You know, I th- I think it was just a culmination of things building up for him and getting more violent with his with the way that he was performing these crimes. So he goes from mm-hmm. you know burglary, home invasion, watching people breathe, watching people sleep. It would have been interesting to get some sort of like psychological ana- analysis of this guy, especially. But to see, like, if he had thoughts of murder previous to this, if he had thoughts about killing people, or if he had thoughts about raping people, obviously he already had some sort of sexual assault, so that was already in his wheelhouse. But the, the, the rising tide of that violence and that increase in violence throughout all of those crimes throughout his lifetime... It was eventually going to lead up to this, which is why bringing to my previous statement at the beginning of this episode, for somebody like that who's been arrested for so many times, put them the fuck away. Like, again, this is something that if you had come to him, you know, 20 fucking crimes ago and said, fuck you, we're putting you in jail for 25 years because you keep on doing this shit and you're only going to get worse and we're going to save somebody's life in the long run. Again, this probably could have been prevented 
in many different ways. Well, think about it. In 2002, he was arrested for 18 home invasions. And in 2002, that was 20 years ago. So he was 21 years old. Yeah. He was a kid. Like, he was, he was, he was a young, young He was a young man, man. who... And he was all, already exactly. seasoned exactly. as a criminal. I see what you're getting at, but it would be interesting to see the outcome of some sort of psychiatric evaluation like that. I'm but sure they when, did one. When you listen to those, um, the interviews with like serial killers, I feel like it's always split down the lines of like their first kill uh, when they're explaining it. It seems to always either be they didn't intend for it, it just happened, and then they started to get curious and kept on doing it, and they ended up, you know, getting addicted to it, or it's something that they increasingly began to fantasize mm-hmm. about and think about and plan out, and then bang, that's that they're doing it and yep. they're hooked, right? So it it could have been either of the two for sure, but for this. This instance, I feel like it was more of a, like, spur of the moment sort of thing. I don't know. See, I, I still don't know if it was a spur of the moment thing. I, I mean, maybe the maybe the choice of the victim, or victims, maybe the choice of of them was a spur of the moment thing. But the intent, the intent to kill, the intent to rape, was definitely there. I can only compare it to interviews that I've seen of serial killers where they're explaining it. That's the most in-depth knowledge I have on the psychology of killers, so forgive me for that. But lighting them on fire just doesn't seem like personal enough for them to be like, yes, I want to kill somebody, I'm going to light them on fire and then leave. Like Most of these crazy assholes that are like you know stabbing people to death, they... They, like, get a rush out of literally feeling the life leave somebody's body. I feel like that was more of, like, them trying to somehow cover it up. Unless the rush part of it was the sexual assault. And then, you know, covering the tracks, having no witnesses, that type of thing. I don't know. I, I feel like at some point, at some point before this all began, they had the intent of of doing something whether or not it was leaving that place murdering someone or it was leaving that place you know fucking somebody up with a baseball bat whatever you know but i think the intent of sexual assault was definitely there i think commissar jeffsky was probably the sick sexual fuck individual that was really in this and i think the other one just went along with it because obviously how are they going to get caught if those people are dead you know On November 8th of 2010, the jury recommended that Hayes be executed, recommending death on each of the six capital criminal offenses. In a plea deal, Hayes attempted to negotiate a life sentence. On December 2nd, 2010, Hayes apologized for causing the Pettit family anguish and suffering, adding, quote, Death for me will be a great relief, and I hope it will provide some peace and solace to who I have harmed so much. See, that's what I mean. This guy wanted the death penalty. Judge John Blue formally imposed six death sentences, one for each of the capital charges. Blue then added a sentence of 106 years for other crimes Hayes committed during the home invasion, including kidnapping, burglary, rape, and assault. 
His execution date was set for May 27th, 2011. Yet usually the process of the death penalty could take decades for someone to sit on death row for it to actually happen. And in August of 2015, his sentence was changed to life in prison. The trial of Komisar Jevsky began on September 19th, 2011. This is years yeah. later. These guys were in the clink. Yeah. Just sitting there. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. 2007, 2000. It's quite some time. His lawyers also accused Hayes for the murders. Again, mm-hmm. the blame game. Claiming that he was the criminal mastermind while their client was confused and easily led and had no intention of killing anyone or breaking yeah. anyone. Hayes is incarcerated in State Correctional Institution in Benner Township, Center County of Pennsylvania. As of October 13th, 2011, Komisar Jevsky was found guilty. The jury recommended the death penalty on December 9th of that same year. Like Hayes, in August of 2015, his sentence was changed to life in prison. He is currently incarcerated at State Correctional Institution in Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania. It's it's one of those things, Horrible. and that is always the dichotomy with the sentencing of murderers, especially. Some of them don't give a fuck, and they will take the death penalty easily, and life in prison would be worse for them. And then there's the, the people, on the other hand, who would rather be in prison for their entire life than get the death penalty. But... I don't know, man. Like it's it's one of those things where you know, it's like that animalistic side of human beings where you want somebody to pay for their crime in the most extreme way possible. Eye for you an know, eye. in this in this case, not even an eye for an eye. Like realistically, they should they should tie these two to posts and light them on fire while they're still alive. And that's how they should take them out. If I was a loved one or a family member of this family, that's probably what I would want the most. Mm, So that's my next question for you both. You can elaborate in your final thought. Should these guys have been put to death? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. We all unanimously agree that they should be dead. Chopped up into little pieces and then killed. Yeah. Whether whether it was what they wanted or not, it was what the family deserved in this um, as, as retribution. But also, I feel like in certain cases with certain people and certain killers, certain individuals, the world as a whole is a better place without them in it. Whether they are, you know, even if they're in prison, okay, you could say, well, he's in prison. He's never going to get out of prison. He will live in prison and be there for the rest of his days but he's still alive still breathing and i'm sorry prison is not a lot of these prisons are not as bad as you may think they are there are plenty of people that are living a-okay in prison um so uh, you know i don't yeah. I, free tattoos free meals free workouts for some of these people that's what really works out so in this particular case, I don't know, man. I just feel like... They're career criminals. They need to pay for it. They need to pay for it and not be on this on this planet anymore. But, yeah, either way. Yeah, well, they're going to die in prison, so... 
The Cheshire home invasion murders had a significant impact on Connecticut's death penalty statutes, and the case galvanized supporters of the state's death sentence and was cited as a reason that any repeal of the state's death penalty should not extend to those already on death row. Makes sense. Hmm. The Connecticut General Assembly sent legislation to Governor M. Jody Rell. You remember Jody Rell? I do, vaguely. Yeah. In 2009, <laughs> presumably to be signed into law to eliminate, as we said, the state's death penalty. However, on June 5th, 2009, Rell vetoed the bill instead, citing the Cheshire killings as an example. So she basically said, these guys shouldn't die, they should rot. But like we're saying, as collectively 50, 60 arrests, these guys are perfectly comfortable where they're at. No, no. She vetoed the bill to stop the death penalty. She kept the death penalty in Connecticut. Oh. Yeah, oh, she, and, okay. and she cites the Cheshire killings as an example, saying like these type of people are why we should, should not killed. get rid of a death penalty. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Get this yeah. leader back <laughs> in office. <laughs> Shit. Hey, it's better than what we got now. On April 11th, 2012, the Connecticut House of Representatives decided to abolish the death penalty in future instances. The bill had previously passed the Connecticut Senate, and Governor Dan Malloy signed it into law on April 25th. You might be asking yourself, where is Dr. Pettit now? Well, in the years following the incident, Pettit married Christine Polliff in 2012. He met her during a Pettit Family Foundation event, a fundraiser. And the couple welcomed a son later in 2013 and is currently a state legislator for the state's 22nd district, which includes New Britain and Plainville, Hard-Hitten and Peablock. Peablock. Yeah. This was a tough one, Hushlings. But that is going to conclude this investigation and the trial. Uh, let's take it to the jury and gather our final thoughts, Declassified Dave. I, uh, I think we're all kind of on the same page, but let's hear it. What do you got for final thoughts? First and foremost, I want to reiterate that I don't see a major conspiracy here. This is a true crime episode, and I don't see as much as I wanted to find a conspiracy of life insurance policy and this type of stuff that Dr. William Pettit may have collaborated with these two idiots and maybe have gotten something out of it. All in all, I think this was a preventable, maybe not preventable situation, but a preventable murder. These two daughters and this guy's wife could still be alive. And, I mean, in reality, Haley, the older daughter, she was around my age. You know, maybe two years younger or so. So she would be in her mid-30s right now. Overall, it's tragic that this happened. And I think the system failed this family. And I think that these two career criminals should have probably been incarcerated for the rest of their life beforehand or at least major time other than 
what they've done. I don't know how many times Hayes was arrested. He was arrested 30 times, but how many times was he arrested in Connecticut? Florida's laws might be different. There might be other states. I think that this is just a massive, horrible miscommunication between the Cheshire Police Department, the bank manager, and unfortunately, this guy lost his first family that he had. He has a new family now. As much as I wanted there to be conspiracy here, I couldn't find one. That's my final thoughts. I think this is a fucked up thing. It, it really hits home because it's very close. Preventable. Uh, this is a tragedy. It's a terrible fucking thing that happened in our state and pretty much anywhere. Um, these guys should have been put to death. I do think it was very odd the way that Dr. Pettit kind of went about things during this entire situation again i can't put myself into his shoes i don't know what he was thinking i don't know the things that were going through his head um i do think that he should have fought for his family but that remains to be seen i am not victim blaming <laughs> uh yeah very sad thing um and these guys are fucking animals it's gross terrible this one this one sucks <laughs> slick frog sanders give us your final thoughts frog's final thought there's definitely some questionable stuff with this this case first and foremost i'm not thrilled about the evidence supporting that dr pettit got hit in the head with a baseball bat four or five times and I'm not saying that to like rise any suspicion. I'm just saying I think that there's like some details and some portions of this story that are twisted or missing and not fully reported on, if that makes any sense. There's a bunch of gaps and strange twists in the timeline that kind of makes things a little bit confusing and hazy for me. I really, really don't like that the jury recommended the death penalty on both of these men and they both ended up getting life in prison somehow. When you, when you have the jury saying, give them the death penalty and they don't do it, I, what's the jury there for then? I don't really understand. What, why are you asking them for their opinions in the first place if, if you're not going to go through with their verdict, right? Yeah, just a terrible, terrible... I think Daniel Malloy and Ned Lamont are the greatest tragedies of Connecticut. <laughs> yes. Yeah, terrible tragedy in Connecticut. Really hits close to home. Very sad. Dr. Pettit, on the other hand, he's kind of turned something terrible into something really good. He's raising a lot of money. I don't know where that money goes, but I'm sure it's going to good causes, right? I mean, either way, he, he bounced back. He has a family. He bounced back, and he's doing good things for the state. And he completely changed his profession. He went from being a doctor to being a politician. So, I mean, whatever he's doing for New Britain and Plainville, I mean, that affects you guys, kind of. Yeah, he, he shows up at, at Plainville graduations. He does a lot of stuff for the local school districts, and I'm sure the hospitals as well, seeing as though he was part of that field. I'm sure a bunch of that money goes to hospitals and infrastructure and stuff like that. If we want to get a good Frank Factor reporter segment, he is doing a speaking in Farmington on the 17th. Dr. Pettit, real quick question for you. Why'd you let your family die? I'm from the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy, and right after I say conspiracy, he just punches me in the fucking nose. Imagine the promotion for the show if that happened. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. You get a selfie with <laughs> William Pettit? You need the punch, man. <laughs> you have to get hit. Well, Hushlings, that's going to do it. Was there anything that we should have discussed in this true crime Hush Hush episode? Did we miss anything crucial? Let us know your thoughts on this topic or any topic that we've previously covered. You can always reach out to us at our email at contact at hushhushsociety.com. It's right around the corner, Hushlings, June 6th. That is right. We will be live on Facebook with our 50th, the Big 5-0 debriefing and fifth live show, where we will delve into transhumanism and infiltrate the Yellow Sand Society. We'll also recap Season 5. We'll be doing some lit trivia. It's going to be tons of fun. There's going to be giveaways, maybe a shirt, maybe a dope hat, definitely some more new stickers. We'll be doing some hot takes and sneak peeks at new thick things coming in Season 6. Yes, that's right. Monday, June 6th, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, live on Facebook. Also, Hushlings, a brand new exclusive debriefing will be available Thursday, June 16th, where we will be exploring the Zona de Silencio, or Zone of Silence. It is a area in Mexico where all your electronic devices and compasses go awry and major UFO sightings. And this will be only on Patreon. Ascend today for a minimal donation of $5 a month. Become a part of the society. And as always, Hushlings, we continue our show just a few weeks after our final season closer. Season 6 will begin June 27th. And we will continue our series on Holocaust denial. Looking forward to getting into that again. Chapter 2. Thank you again for attending another debriefing of the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. I'm Declassified Dave. I'm Mystery Mike. And I'm Slick Frank Sanders. Until our next debriefing, remember, the best kept secrets are hidden in plain sight.